This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Ana Sofia Simão, de Portugal. The Rosary by Florence L. Barclay. Chapter 35. Nurse Rosemary as her reward. Mr. Dalmain, said Nurse Rosemary, with patient insistence, I really do want you to sit down and give your mind to the tea table. How can we remember where each thing is placed if you keep jumping up and moving your chair into different positions? And last time you pounded the table to attract my attention, which was already anxiously fixed upon you, you nearly knocked over your own tea and sent floods of mine into the saucer. If you cannot behave better, I shall ask Marjorie for a pinafore and sit you up on a high chair. Gar stretched his leg in front of him and his arms over his head and lay back in his chair, laughing joyously. Then I should have to say, Please, nurse, may I get down? What a cheeky little thing you are becoming! And you used to be quite oppressively polite. I suppose you would answer, If you say your grace nicely, Mother Garth, you may. Do you know the story of Tommy, you should say your grace? You have told it to me twice in the last forty-eight hours, said Nurse Rosemary patiently. Oh, what a pity! I felt so like telling it now. If you had really been the sort of sympathetic person Sir Derek described, you'd have said no, and I should so love to hear it. No, and I should so love to hear it said Nurse Rosemary. Too late, and that sort of thing, to have any value, should be spontaneous. It need not be true, but it must be spontaneous. But, talking of a high chair, when you say those chavy things in a voice like Jane's, and just as Jane's would have said them, oh my wig. Do you know, that is the Duchess' only original little swear. All the rest are quotations, and when she says, my wig, we all try not to look at it. It is usually slightly awry. The token tweaks it. He is so very loving, dear bird. Now hand me the butter toast, said Nurse Rosemary. And don't tell me any more naughty stories about the Duchess. No, that is thin bread and butter. I told you you would lose your bearings. The toast is in a warm plate on your right. Now, let us make believe I am his champion and hand it to me as nicely as you will be handing it to her this time tomorrow. It is easy to make believe you are Jane with that voice, said Garth. And yet, I don't know. I have never really associated you with her. One little sentence old Rob's made all the difference to me. He said you had fluffy floss silk sort of hair. No one could ever imagine Jane with fluffy floss silk sort of hair. And I believe that one sentence saved the situation. Otherwise, your voice would have driven me mad those first days. As it was, I used to wonder sometimes if I could possibly bear it. You understand why now, don't you? And yet, in a way, it is not like hers. Hers is deeper, and she often speaks with a delicious kind of drawl and uses heaps of slang. And you are such a, a very proper little person, and possess what the primers call perfectly correct diction. What fun it would be to hear you and Jane talk together. And yet, I don't know. I should be on thorns all the time. Why? I should be so awfully afraid lest you should not like one another. 
You see, you have really, in a way, been more to me than anyone else in the world. And she, well, she is my world, said Garth simply. And I should be so afraid lest she should not fully appreciate you, and you should not quite understand her. She has a sort of way of standing and looking people up and down, and woman hated, especially pretty fluffy little woman. They feel she spots all the things that come off. Nothing of mine comes off, murmured Nurse Rosemary, excepting my patient when he will not stay on his chair. Once, continued Cars, with the gleeful enjoyment in his voice, which already presages the story in which Jane figured. There was a fearfully silly little woman staying at Overdean, when a lot of us were there. We never could make out why she was included in one of the Duchess's best parties, except that the dear Duchess vastly enjoyed taking her off and telling stories about her, and we could not appreciate the cleverness of the impersonation unless we had seen the original. She was rather pretty, in a fussy, curling tongues, wax doll sort of way. But she never could let her appearance alone or allow people to forget it. Almost every sentence she spoke drew attention to it. We got very sick of it and asked Jane to make her shut up. But Jane said, It doesn't hurt you boys, and it pleases her. Let her be. Jane was always extra nice to people, if she suspected they were asked down in order to make sport for the Duchess afterwards. Jane hated that sort of thing. She couldn't say much to her aunt, but we had to be very careful how we egged Duchess on if Jane was within hearing. Well, one evening, after tea, the little group of us were waiting around the fire in the lower hall to talk to Jane. It was Christmas time. The logs looked so jolly on the earth. The red velvet curtains were drawn right across, covering the terrace door and windows on either side. Tommy sat on his perch in the center of the group, keeping a keen lookout for cigarette ends. Outside the world was deep in snow, and that wonderful silent rain, making the talk and laughter within all the more gay by contrast. You know, that penetrating silence, when trees and fields and paths are covered a foot thick in soft sparkling whiteness. I always look forward, just as eagerly, each winter to the first sight. Ah, I forgot. Fancy never seeing snow again. Never mind. It is something to remember having seen it. And I shall hear the wonderful snow silence more clearly than ever. Perhaps before other people pull up the blinds I shall be able to say, There's been a fall of snow in the night. What was I telling you? Ah, yes, I remember. About little Mrs. Fusty. Well, all the women had gone up to dress for dinner, excepting Jane, who never needed more than half an hour, and Fusty was being sprightly in a labored way, and fancied herself the center of attraction which kept us congregated in hall. As a matter of fact, we were waiting to tell Jane some private news we had just heard about a young chap in the guards, who was in fearful hot water for ragging. His colonel was an old friend of Jane's, and we thought she could put in a word and improve matters for Billy. So, Mrs. Fussy was very much the drop, and didn't know it. Jane was sitting with her back to all of us, her feet on fender, her, and her skirt turned up over her knees. Oh, there was another one underneath, a handsome silk thing with rows of little frills, which you think should have gone on outside. 
But Jane's best things are never parodied, always hidden. I don't mean clothes now, but her, her splendid self. Well, little fuss he was chatting, she never talked, about herself and her conquests, quite unconscious that we all wish her a Jericho. Jane went on reading the evening paper, but she felt the atmosphere growing restive. Presently, ah, uh, but I must not tell you the rest. I have just remembered. Jane made us promise never to repeat it. She thought it detrimental to the other woman. But we just had time for our confab, and Jane caught the evening post with a letter which got Billy off scot-free, and yet came down punctuality to dinner, better dressed than any of them. We felt it rather hard luck to have to promise, because we had each counted on being the first to tell the story to the Duchess. But, you know, we always have to do as Jane says. Why? Oh, I don't know. I can't explain why. If you knew her, you'd not need to ask. Cake, Miss Gray? Thank you. Right, this time. There. That is exactly as Jane would have said it. Right, this time. It is not strange that, after having for a week thought your voice so like hers, tomorrow I shall be thinking her voice so like yours. Oh, no, you will not, said Nurse Rosemary. When she is with you, you will have no thoughts for other people. Indeed, but I shall, cried Garth. And, dear little Rosemary, I shall miss you horribly. No one, not even she, can take your place. And, do you know? He leaned forward and a troubled look clouded the gladness of his face. I am beginning to feel anxious about it. She has not seen me since the accident. I am afraid it will give her a shock. Do you think she'll find me much changed? Jane looked at Slack's face, turned so anxiously toward her. She remembered that morning in his room, when he thought himself alone with Dr. Roth, and, leaving the shelter of the wall, sat up to speak, and she saw his face for the first time. She remembered turning to the fireplace, so that Dr. Rob should not see the tears raining down her cheeks. She looked again at Garth, now growing conscious for the first time of his disfigurement, and then, only for her sake, and an almost overwhelming tenderness gripped her heart. She glanced at the clock. She could not hold out much longer. Is it very bad? said Garth, and his voice shook. I cannot answer for another woman, replied Nurse Rosemary, but I should think your face, just as it is, will always be your joy. Garth flushed, pleased and relieved, but slightly surprised. There was a quality in Nurse Rosemary's voice for which she could not altogether account. But then she will not be accustomed to my blind ways, he continued. I am afraid I shall seem so helpless and so blundering. She has not been in sightless land, as you and I have been. She does not know all our plans of cords and notches and things. Ah, little Rosemary, promise not to leave me tomorrow. I want her, only God knows I want her, but I begin to be half afraid. It will be so wonderful for the great essentials, but for the little everyday happenings, which are so magnified by the darkness, oh, my kind unseen guide, how I shall need you. At first, I thought it lucky you had settled to go, just when she is coming. But now, just because she is coming, I cannot let you go. Having her will be wonderful beyond words, but it will not be the same as having you. 
Nurse Rosemary was receiving a reward, and she appeared to find it rather overwhelming. As soon as she could speak, she said gently, Don't excite yourself over it, Mr. Dalmain. Believe me, when you have been with her for five minutes, you'll find it just the same as having me. And how do you know she has not also been in Slightless Land? A nurse will do that sort of thing, because she was very keen on her profession and on making a success of her case. The woman who loves you would do it for love of you. It would be like her, said Garth, and leaned back, a look of deep contentment gathering on his face. Oh, Jane, Jane, she's coming, she's coming. Nurse Rosemary looked at the clock. Yes, she's coming, she said, and though her voice was steady, her hands trembled. And as this is our last evening together under quite some circumstances, as during all these weeks, will you agree to a plan of mine? I must go upstairs now and do some packing and make a few arrangements. But will you dress early? I will do the same, and if you could be down in the library by half past six, we might have some music before dinner. Why, certainly, said Garth. It makes no difference to me at what time I dress, and I am always ready for music. But I say, I wish you were not packing, Miss Gray. I am not exactly packing up, replied Nurse Rosemary. I am packing things away. It is all the same if it means leaving. But you have promised not to go until she comes? I will not go until she comes. And you will tell her all the things she ought to know? She shall know all I know, which could add to your comfort. And you'll not leave me until I am really, well, getting all all right? I will never leave you while you need me, said Nurse Rosemary. And again Garth detected that peculiar quality in her voice. He rose and came towards where he heard her. He rose and came towards where he heard her to be standing. Do you know, you are no end of a brick, he said with emotion. Then he held out both hands towards her. Put your hands in mine just for once, little Rosemary. I want to try to thank you. There was a moment of hesitation. Two strong, capable hands, strong and capable, though just then they trembled, nearly went home to his but were withdrawn just in time. Jane's hour was not yet. This was Nurse Rosemary's moment of triumph and success. It should not be taken from her. This evening, she said softly, after the music we will shake hands. Now be careful, sir. You are stranded. Wait. Here is the garden court, just to your left. Take a little air on the terrace and sing again the lovely song I heard under my window this morning. And now that you know what is that is going to happen, this exquisite May Day evening will fill you with tender expectations. Goodbye, sir, for an hour. What has come to little Rosemary? mused Garth, as he felt for his cane in its corner by the window. We should not have gone on indefinitely quite as we have been since she came in from the post office. He walked on, a troubled look clouding his face. Suddenly it lifted, and he stood still and left. Duffer, he said. Oh, what a conceited Duffer. She's thinking of her young man. She's going to him tomorrow, and her mind is full of him, just as mine is full of Jane. Dear, good, clever little Rosemary. I hope he's worthy of her.
No, that he cannot be. I hope he knows he is not worthy of her. That is more to the point. I hope he will receive her as she expects. Somehow, I hate letting her go to him. Oh, hang the fellow, as Tommy would say. End of chapter 35